Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You can have a seat. It's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, thank you for being here to, to worship with us and to look at God's Word together. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Romans 14, and we're going to be talking about our conscience, which makes for an interesting problem because we have to all talk about what is conscience. What does that mean for us? I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I first started thinking about conscience a few years ago, I realized someone at some point told me I have a conscience, but they also told me that like, I have an arm and eyes and, and feet, and that's much easier to describe than my conscience. I know my conscience has something to do with that voice inside my head, with the, the inner dialogue that I have, yet I'm not always sure how to talk about it, right? In, in our culture, we've personified conscience in many different ways. All right. Oftentimes we, we talk about our conscience as though it's this good and the bad, pulling us both directions, trying to get us to, to obey one way or the other, or it's this wise voice inside of us that's trying to guide us down the right path. I mean, Dis- Disney engages with this a lot, and actually they're not that far off from how we as Christians think about conscience, and that's because having a conscience is part of being an image bearer of God. It's, it's a cultural touch point that we have even with non-believers because we all have a conscience and we all understand this idea that something is going on inside of us. You know, conscience is, is an issue that is addressed many times throughout scripture. In fact, the word in the New Testament that's used for conscience is used 30 different times, two times in Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, five times in Hebrews and three times in Peter, first Peter. And clearly, This is an important idea. In fact, when we look at just the book of Romans, Paul spends all of chapter 14 and the very beginning of chapter 15 talking about our conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8, he does the same thing in that chapter. I mean, that's 10% of Romans that he spends talking about our conscience and how to think about it, how our consciences and other consciences work together, how we think about Christ in the midst of that. You know, this morning, Paul's going to drop us right in the middle of a discussion that he wants to have with us about what do we do when my conscience says one thing and your conscience says another? What do we do in those moments? You know, I love that Paul goes here. Uh, We could have expected him after he went through Romans 1 through 8 and showed us this amazing glories of God, all the beauty of the gospel, and then he gets to the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11 to then begin to give us just to-do lists, things to do that are good, things not to do that are bad, but that's not what he does. He starts in Romans 12 by reminding us that we need to love one another, serve one another like Christ served us. And even when he gets to Romans 13 and he talks about submitting to governing authorities, he talks about doing that as those who should love others and give them the love that we owe them because of the love Christ has shown us. You know, when you think about it, Paul isn't just staying high level as though he's trying not to answer the hard questions. Rather, Paul throughout this section is getting to the actual heart of the matter. He's getting to the real heart of the matter for us. Do we know how to love one another with the counterintuitive, love-laden, cross-embracing manner that Jesus loved us? Are we able to do that? That is what Paul is going to press into us today not with another list of things to do or not to do, but rather talking about how our conscience works. 
So, so we need to start by looking at the conscience in general and talk about how do we define it. You know, I'm, I'm honored to know, I uh, have a good friend, his name's Andy Nacelli, Dr. Andy Nacelli. He wrote a book called Conscience, What Is It, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's a fantastic book, and it's really helped my understanding of how Paul and Scripture uh, talk about conscience. I mean, there's so many aspects that we're barely going to delve in today that if you, you hear something today, you're like, wow, I wish we'd spent more time in the sermon on that. I would highly encourage just reading this book. It's a great look at Romans and 1 Corinthians. You know, in looking at these 30 different verses, here's how Andy and his writing partner, J.D. Crowley, who's a missionary in Cambodia, came up with a definition. This is what they said. They said, the conscience is your consciousness or awareness or sense of what you believe is right or wrong. That's what your conscience is. It's your own awareness. It's your consciousness. They, they use those two words together to keep it memorable. Uh, for your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And we actually have a really good way we can test that definition because we've already seen the idea of conscience three other times in Romans already. So if we look back to Romans 2, here's what Paul says. Paul says, they show, meaning Gentiles, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul's talking here about how even those who've been given the explicit revelation of the law, they're still the Gentiles, those who didn't have the law, whose conscience tells them what is right and wrong. That's what, exactly that definition here that is working out, that, that it, it even excused them when they did things that they knew were good, treating other people kindly, or it accused them when they were doing things that were wrong. That works with this definition. Or if we get to chapter 9, here's how Paul uses it again here. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is talking about his, his, his anguish, his turmoil inside for the, his Jewish brothers and sisters and, and their salvation. And he's saying here his conscience tells him that, that he's saying the right thing. He's speaking truthfully. This is really what's going on inside of him. So again, the definition bears out here. And then again in Romans 13, in a very different way, Paul says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This was last week with Rich talking through Romans 13 and being subjected to governing authorities. And here he's saying, not only should we do it for the sake of God tells us to submit ourselves to governing authorities, but there should be something in your conscience that says that's the right thing to do. If you've ever been in a position of authority, you should have some sense within yourself that having others submit, allow you to do what you need to do is what you're hoping for. In fact, maybe you've gotten really frustrated when they haven't done it. Your conscience speaks to you that that is the right way to treat someone in that position. You know, this idea, this idea that the conscience is our consciousness of what we believe is right and wrong, that's how we actually do think about it. That's the internal battle, battle that internal dialogue that we're all very familiar with at times. This dialogue that's telling us what to do in one moment, though we can't quite get there, uh, this dialogue that makes us look back late nights upon our day and realize things that we might have wished we'd done a little bit different. You know, that definition plays out across all those different aspects, those different 30 verses throughout Scripture, and I'd encourage you to look at them. But one of the neat things is when we look at those other 30 verses, we come up with some other amazing things that we see about our conscience. First, we see some positive things about our conscience. First, the conscience can be good in the sense of blameless, clear, clean, and pure. Well, that's a good idea, right? If this is what's governed me, this is what's helping me to decide right and wrong, man, I really want it to be clean, pure, good, blameless. I don't know about you, but I know mine doesn't always work that way. 
I know mine doesn't always take me in the right direction. I mean, do any of you have those moments that you look back in your life? And, and it doesn't always have to be the big ones, but when you look back and you're like, man, my conscience took me in the wrong direction. <laughs> I said the wrong thing in that moment. I, I, I did not do this well. And you kind of cringe when you look back at that. I have lots of those. I mean, here's an example. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor who preached in the early 1900s. This is from 1924, early on in his ministry. These were things he was saying in his sermons, and I have no doubt that he wished he hadn't done this. He said this. He said, uh, sorry, let me go back. He says, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats. None of you wear spats. Those are those little white things on top of dress shoes. Shoes instead of boots or who carries a cane in his hand. He said, the modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. Or when I enter a house that has a wireless apparatus, a radio, I know that at once something is wrong. Your five valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. I'm sure you have things like that that you've said, right? Things that you look back on. Maybe, maybe that trivial, talking about radios and how dumb they are, to something much more serious. Ways that your conscience in the moment seemed to tell you that was the right thing to do, the right way to engage with someone, which is why this second positive truth is so helpful. The conscience can be cleansed. It, 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 that is cleared, perfected, purified, washed, purged, and sprinkled clean. It can be changed into that state. We can move from where we're at today, where our conscience is today, to a state that is much more aligned with God, with who Christ is. In fact, that's so much of the process that we're in today. That's so much of the process of our sanctification where little by little, we're being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. And that is happening through our conscience being conformed, being calibrated to what God would say is good and bad, loving and pleasing. That is so necessary and so helpful because of all the negative things we see about our conscience throughout scripture. It says that the conscience can be weak. The conscience can be wounded. The conscience can be defiled. The conscience can be encouraged or emboldened to sin. The conscience can be evil or guilty. And the conscience can be seared with a hot iron. These are arranged in order from least bad to most bad. Uh, Paul today in Romans 14 is going to talk about our conscience that's weak, that just isn't quite rightly oriented. Yet we can see at the farthest end of it, our, our conscience can become seared, seared like, like a burn on your hand that no longer has any sensation or feeling anymore. And that is a tragic moment when our conscience gets to that place on any issue in any part of our life. You know, this, this pairs with what we see in those same passages of what our conscience can do. We saw some of this through our passages here in Romans. The conscience can bear witness or can confirm. On the other end, the conscience can try to judge or try to determine someone else's freedom. That's something we don't usually want to do with it. And the conscience can lead us to act a certain way. I mean, all of this is reminding us of this reality that our conscience is our awareness of what we believe is right and wrong. And that has amazing implications for our life. And it's very amazing what God has done. First implication is that our consciousness is a priceless gift from God. Why would God choose to imbue me and you, all image bearers, believing and non-believing, with a sense of right and wrong? 
That's a sweet and kind gift. Something we want to treasure and take care of. Be careful not to wound it. Be careful not to lead it down the right direction, the wrong directions, only into the right directions. Because we see here that our conscience is our guide. It helps us look forward to think about what should happen next. And our conscience is also a monitor, a witness, a judge. It helps us look backwards and evaluate how we've done in our lives. And here's one of the most amazing things about consciousness is they're so unique. Each person has their own conscience. It is for you and you alone. Mind your own conscience, (laughs) right? God gave you your conscience. He is working in you in a specific pattern through a specific life that he might sanctify you in his ways. We don't know how he's doing that in everyone's life. So we want to be careful. We want to worry first and foremost about our conscience. Where is it rightly aligned? Where is it not rightly aligned? And no two people have the exact same conscience on any given issue, (laughs) Right? We might get really close, but you start drilling down, we're very nuanced between each other. You know, the conscience produces different results in different people, but God, God is the only Lord of the conscience. He's the one who is working in you to change you, to grow you, to sanctify you, to conform you more like Christ. And man, this last one is so good to remember. No person's conscience is perfectly aligned to God's will. None of us are there yet. <laughs> None of us know perfectly the will of God. We are striving for that daily, that we might know him more, that we might walk in his ways and his wisdom. You know, it's important to see that we can damage our conscience. That's what happens when we repeatedly sin in the same ways without repentance. We begin to to wound it and can even sear it. And praise God, our consciences can be changed. We can calibrate it through the very word of God. That's the primary way he's given us. He's given us his very word. And then through his word, a community of people that surround us to remind us what walking that out looks like in our lives. You know, interestingly, even though we see all that, even though we see these negatives about our conscience and we see these positives, there's an overriding theme throughout scripture that we see when we see our conscience. Obey your conscience. Even though it can at times mislead you, God is more concerned, it seems, and we're going to see this in Romans 14, about a heart that is softly pursuing him, that is diligently holding out their choices, that he might give them insight, and then he wants you to keep your conscience tender, tender to how he might move you. So we start with the disposition of obeying our conscience. God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, values our softness and our sensitivity towards him it seems even above our perfection. That's much of what we're going to talk about today. You know, Martin Luther, when he was standing before the Catholic Church and was being tried, being commanded to repent of all of his Protestant views, this is what he said. He said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Your conscience is a good thing. If you are calibrating it before the Lord, if you are holding your choices before him in prayer, in diligence with good counsel around you, it is a thing you are supposed to follow. You're supposed to trust. Trust what God is doing in and through you. And you can see already the tension that you're going to have thinking about your conscience in your life. I mean, first and foremost, we experience it when we first come to faith. 
this internal struggle that we have realizing how bad we have been, how we have not followed and done the right things that our conscience was taking us the total wrong direction. And we need to turn back to what God has called us to. And we do what Paul has encouraged us throughout Romans again and again, fall on the grace of Jesus Christ. And then sadly, it doesn't stop there. (laughs) The older saints in this room will affirm to you that as you go along, your knowledge of the right and wrong will grow faster than your ability to do it. You will feel that tension in your conscience of this is what I want. This is what I want. This is Paul in Romans 7. This is what I want to do, but I don't do, and I don't do, but I want to do. And again, as Paul would proclaim to us and exclaim to us, fall on the grace of Jesus. He is there for that gap. You know, we're going to feel that tension as, as we try to deal with our conscience, as we have to ask ourselves, have I wounded it somewhere? Is it actually maybe even seared? I'm not even rightly feeling anymore about certain issues. And all of this, we're going to realize, comes to an even bigger tension when my conscience says one thing and your conscience says another. <laughs> You're going to totally feel the tension when that occurs. And we, we need to have some ways to think about that, especially that, that last issue. That's what Paul's going to drop us into here in Romans 14. How do we even begin to think about your conscience and how it thinks and my conscience and how it reacts to different things? And so one last idea here that's helpful for us is that we need to understand the different issues and the different orders of issues in our life. I mean, first and foremost, we run into what's called first order issues. These are necessary to be a Christian. These are issues that we should, we should focus on primarily as theological issues, knowing of God and his character, knowing what is right and wrong, good and bad at the highest level that God has declared simply and clearly to us from scripture. It's knowing the beauty and the necessity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. And then we bump into these other things, these second order issues, issues of, of reasonable boundaries. We see these in different churches. It's things about how you order your leadership, Uh, what you understand as the goal and mission of your group together, Uh, how how you create boundaries that are healthy and proper, just like people often do in marriages. But really, it brings us down to this last group of things. This is the one that we're all going to struggle with most, these third order issues, which are disputable matters. In fact, you've probably also heard them called matters of the conscience, right? It's exactly where where we live so often in our day-to-day life. And these are the ones that we bump into with one another again and again. And this is exactly the kind of thing Paul wants to talk about. If you don't see yourself in this list, I don't know if you're listening to it. Third order issues. These are questions like, will you watch violent movies or MMA for entertainment? How do you treat Sundays and Sabbath? Listening to secular music. Capitalism versus socialism. What dressing modestly looks like. Voting Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, or Republican, or other, or write-in. Global warming, reading Harry Potter. Homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. Vaccinations or no vaccinations are everyone's favorite. Public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool. Eating fast food that is unhealthy. (laughs) Smoking cigars. Body piercing and tattoos. Going into debt. Dating versus courtship how many children married couples should have, being overweight, and Santa Claus. We'll leave that one where it's at because of the audience, please. We are always going to be interacting with one another, specifically Christians, where these third-level issues come into play again and again in our lives. And the question for me and you 
is how will we react, how will we love when we bump into these differences of consciences with one another? And that's exactly what Paul wants to speak to in Romans 14. He assumes that we've already thought through this issue of conscience. And when we come to it, he's going to hold us accountable for when these kind of things happen, how are you going to act? What are you going to do? Now, I know in one sense you can say, phew, that's a lot. That feels like learning about the conscience by a fire hose. And again, if there is something in there you want to think more about, I would again recommend this book. It's been very helpful to me. But this is necessary to navigate Romans 14 because Paul assumes a lot of this knowledge already. He assumes that we spent our time thinking about our conscience and how it works. You know, in Romans 14, we see a very specific third level dispute occurring. Uh, We have Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians together. And we see this discussion come on that seems to be really big in the culture of the day. And not only is happening in Rome, it's happening in Corinth. It's this question about eating different foods. And it seems that the Gentile believers, because their background has no, no dietary restrictions really related to their faith, or they were so random, they don't view it as any monolithic or singular idea, they don't really struggle with this idea. Whereas the Jewish Christians coming from a background in the law and the Torah, feeling like they have to to deal with diet in very specific ways, are really struggling with what's going on in Christian culture. Now, we can't act like this doesn't matter. It matters so much that, that God comes and appears to Peter in Acts 10 to remind him, it's okay to eat. Look at all these things on this sheet, the things that you've never eaten before. Go for it, Peter. It wasn't easy for Peter. It's the same thing that's going on. And this is a good reminder for us that oftentimes our conscience is calibrated, sometimes even correctly by our culture when we don't realize it. And sometimes it's, correct, it's, it's culturally wrong. And in fact, when we look at these two groups, we would have to say, because God was clear on this third level issue, that they could eat whatever they wanted, that in this sense, the Gentiles had the stronger conscience. And in this sense, the Jewish Christians had the weaker conscience right? We, had, we have these two situations playing out here. We have a strong conscience, a conscience that has confidence to eat meat. You know, these are the people saying everything belongs to God so we can eat everything we want. Yeah, these were mostly the Gentile Christians. And then on the other side, we have weak conscience, a conscience that lacks confidence to eat meat, that says we want to keep some of our previous food restrictions, and that's mostly the Jewish Christians. But there's something larger at stake here, You know, it isn't just that there's a difference between the two, but Paul is seeing seeds of heresy being sown into the discussion. You know, at the very beginning, there's one side that says, I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't are being unreasonable and theologically are in error. Have you ever heard language like that? It's becoming more prominent in our Christian culture, right? And there's an arrogance to the way that can be said so often. You know, it diminishes the gospel at times and looks down on fellow image bearers of God. And even worse, it can begin to get us to cross over the line into immorality, right? Where that conversation eventually takes you is, I have freedom not only to eat meat, but to go to the parties at idol temples, 1 Corinthians 8. You know, this is fully crossing the line into heresy, right? It distorts the gospel by taking away something from the gospel where it is meant to have a holy outcome on our life not licentiousness. Yet on the other side, we have this weak conscience. This weak conscience that wants to say, it is sinful to eat meat, and Christians who do so are being unfaithful to God. Begin going down a judgmental road. That way is going down arrogance towards heresy. This road is going down judgmentalism towards heresy. 
And at the end of the line, it says, you must follow the Old Testament dietary restrictions if you want to be a Christian, or maybe more pertinent to us today, you must do this thing. If you just do this thing, you will make God happy now. It's projecting us back into the law, something Paul's talked about many times. I mean, go back to our list of third level issues here. I think I almost never run into a Christian who looks at these issues and where they're at and says, I'm the weak one in this. Everyone thinks they're on the strong side of the decision. No one walks around thinking they're the weak one. The reality is we all have weak areas. And one of the ways to tell is how we're reacting. Are we trying to bind someone where scripture doesn't bind them? That's the path of a weak conscience. What's amazing here in Romans 14 is that Paul is going to say that we are supposed to walk out the kind of charity, the kind of love, the kind of grace that he's going to show us throughout this chapter, even when we know exactly what God would say about that third order issue. He's taking an issue they knew the answer on. They know the answer on eating. There should be freedom. Yet he's going to say some amazing things about how we should treat each other, even when we know that real answer on that issue. That's the beauty of what Paul is wanting to do for us here in Romans 14. It's a radical form of love and care and unity that he is after. And so what we end up here in Romans 14 is one long application of how to walk out our conscience with one another. And it's beautiful. I mean, just walk through this passage with me. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And this is Paul's first point. Welcome those who disagree with you. Welcome those. Do you think we do that well as a church? Do you think you do that well personally? I mean, I think we do it pretty good. I'm sure there's ways we could do it more. Be willing to welcome people who disagree with us, especially on these kind of issues, conscience level issues. You know, it... it, Praise God that someone did that for me and you. (laughs) And perhaps they just need teaching. Perhaps they need time to work it out. God working through their life. Perhaps they simply need someone to care for them. Can you welcome people in who you disagree with on third level issues of conscience? Here's where he goes next. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. These are Paul's next two points. He says, those who have freedom of conscience should not look down on those who don't. And those whose conscience is restricted must not be judgmental towards the one who has freedom. That's what we've just been talking about and how conscience works. You know, we want to, to think deeply about these issues. It's good to speak and talk about them with people that you can have those kind of conversations with. Encourage one another why you're coming to those answers and those decisions. But stop for a minute and think. If I was to look at your social media, your Facebook posts, your Twitter, your B Reel, I guess, if you've been to a lot of rallies or something, I don't know. The question here is what would you see? Are you welcoming in others on matters of conscience? Even if you believe you are strong, whether you're right or wrong, are you looking down at others whose conscience isn't where your conscience is at? Or possibly, do you have areas that you've been convinced of that you want to bind other people as well on? I'm sorry to say that. I mean, I've done that. I'm sure you've done it. But Paul's asking us to stop for a moment and consider 
where are you, even if you think you are strong, and where are you, even if you're humble enough to admit you're weak in it, wrongly engaging with others? Here's where Paul goes a direction I think none of us would expect him to go. Look what he says next. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul doesn't say, Hey, stop it. You're the weak one. You just need to become strong. Paul, in fact, doubles down. He says, Take your positions of conscience. Go before the Lord. Examine it with scripture. Seek wise counsel. Double down and become fully convinced about what you are doing. This is his point that each believer should be fully convicted of their own position in their conscience before the Lord. Not making it flippantly, not doing it outside of faith. Because there's something amazing that can happen if people do that. This next step is crucial on us laying before God each and every decision, holding it out to the word, what he says next. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the, living, of the dead and of the living. This is an utterly amazing statement. That people who are holding their lives out wholly before the Lord can do two different things, and both of them fully glorify God. That is incredible. That is a wondrous mystery of God. That in his working in your conscience through the Holy Spirit, you can do one thing and I can do the exact opposite. You can eat, I cannot eat. You can observe one day as especially holy and I cannot observe it. And yet God gets glory because of how we trust him in it through our faith. That is incredible. I mean, this is a God who is demonstrating again and again that he is more after our hearts than he is after perfect walking things out. This is Psalm 51. For I will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The very thing that saves us the first time in a heart that is broken before the Lord, admitting that we cannot solve the problem, is the heart that we need to continue to have throughout our lives that says, God, I don't know if I'm making the right choice here. Help me to make the right choice, right? Help me in my unbelief. You know, to be clear, we are not saying that the wrong theology is the goal. And to be clear, we are not saying that a disobedient heart that just says with passing words, oh, I really want to honor God, is going to honor him. You know, when confronted with the truth of scripture, we all have a responsibility, as Paul just said, to be truly convicted of our own position. We have to look at it. Yet God is looking for a people who want to walk and pray and look and lean on him in dependence daily for all these types of decisions. That would mean that we should have in Rev and in our friend group people voting for this party and people voting for that party. We should have people with kids that are in public school, private school, homeschooled. We should have Harry Potter fans and detractors. And we should have people who eat McDonald's as though no one else cares. We should love that about our community. And we 
should love it because that's what Paul's fifth point is here. We should assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. Start with that assumption. Start with the assumption that everyone is doing what they're doing as best they know because they love God and they want to see him glorified in their life. And Paul says, remember that. Start from that point because of this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, it's more easy to have charity, to have grace with one another when we realize that we do not judge each other in these matters because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And that's a sobering reality. Sobering reality that all of my choices on these third order issues are going to be judged because as Paul will say at the very end here in Romans 14, everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Meaning that if I didn't actually hold it out before God, I just did it because it seemed the best idea or the most pleasing idea to me, that's just as self-serving as doing the wrong thing. We are all going to be judged, but it's also one of the most freeing things because it is not my job to judge your conscience. (laughs) It is the Lord's. He will judge it. He will be the one that grows you in that, sanctifies you in that over time. I mean, this leads to the next point, that your freedom is correct if you understand freedom, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weaker brother or sister. I mean, that comes from Romans 14, 13 through 15, where Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, Paul's not saying that we shouldn't strive to have our will, our conscience aligned as clearly as it can be, as closely as it can be with the Lord's will. And in fact, from the very beginning, when he's talked about the weakness of faith, it doesn't mean they don't trust in Jesus enough. It just means at where they're at in their walk, in their faith, they aren't yet able to see this as freedom, not yet able to see this as what would be pleasing to God in this way. The goal here is to say that we should never do this at the expense of another's conscience being, being, uh, being belittled or at worst destroyed, as Paul says here. And we need to treat that as a real possibility, a real possibility how we as ambassadors of Jesus Christ can affect someone else's walk by how we might belittle them as an image bearer of God and the process and stage they're at in their salvation and their sanctification. That we might actually cause them to walk away from the faith. That is tragic. That elevates this issue of conscience from what feels like a third order McDonald's question to one of infinite value where we want others to walk rightly with the Lord their God and feel loved on these third order issues no matter where they're at. You know, there's something more important here. Something bigger at stake is what we're being pushed to again and again. Paul says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of evil. He's not talking here good in the sense of the thing that you like. He's talking this bigger picture. What's the bigger good that we are all after? Don't let that bigger good, the gospel of Jesus Christ, be spoken of of evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. What we regard as good is the gospel of Jesus Christ and our conflicts with each other over third order issues of consciousness, our inability to allow others to walk in their conscience where they're at in their sanctification process can disparage the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only amongst believers, but also amongst the watching world that sees us bicker over food. That's his point here. Disagreements about eating or drinking, third level issues are not important in the kingdom of God. He literally says that they're not important. That's not about how you're saved. That's not about how you will walk into the kingdom of God. Building up one another in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Don't fool yourself. No matter how passionately you feel about your issues of conscience, it does not trump the gospel and the need to love image bearers of God wherever they are in their path of salvation and sanctification. We can have different opinions. That's actually very healthy. You know, our primary concern is not when we actually can have a conversation with someone who tells us about their disagreements, who we can have a civil conversation with. The concern most often is the person who's not going to say something, who watches how we act, who watches what we say, and is tempted to change their conscience when they're not there yet, when that's not something they fully believe. You know, the fear is that we might overpower someone in a conversation. Those who might see us do something without us knowing and be enticed and encouraged to do the same if their conscience isn't ready for it. That's what we should be on the lookout for. And that's why Paul can encourage us with this. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. It's a hard statement. His point is that if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. How un-American anti-social media is that? Keep it to yourself. If you're with people who have similar freedoms, enjoy the freedom. If you're not sure, be careful. <laughs> if you're strict, don't bind everyone else. This is all because the gospel is at stake. We want to be able to trust our conscience, to let it guide us, and we want others to be able to trust their conscience as well. Yes, God may change, purify, clean, mold our consciences along the way, but it's a good thing to walk in the conscience that God has given you today. This is what Paul says, both for the person who has the weak conscience and the one who has the strong in this moment. He said, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Meaning they've stood before the Lord. They did their best. May it need to be changed down the road? Absolutely. But he's saying, how blessed are you when you can stand before the Lord and say, I, I was doing my best, Lord. I, I can try. I still may need to apologize. I actually may have hurt someone. But man, in my conscience, I know what I was trying to do. I know what I was asking you about. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's our last point in this chapter. The person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. We want that. We want that for those who are walking in the strength of their conscience in the moment. We also want those for those who are walking in the weakness of their conscience in the moment because you and I are both a mix of both of those things at any given moment. Now, do you believe that God gave your conscience to you for your good? 
and that God gave the conscience he's given to your neighbor for their good and that God is the Lord of the conscience, that he is the one growing and sanctifying each and every one of us along the path that he has given us. And can you be okay that when your neighbor's conscience differs from yours, that you both, through your seeking of the Lord, through your holding out in prayer and petition and good counsel, can love one another and encourage one another and see that God can be glorified and honored through very different positions. Because that's the amazing thing about a God who's looking at our hearts, who knows what he's working us through from our entire life from birth to today, all the ways that he's trying to grow us and shift us and change us. He is truly smiling down on you in your decisions. We should see that for one another, remind one another, even in our disagreements, that God is smiling down on us, that he is growing us and changing us. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we come to communion. After this, this, during this song set, I would encourage you to go to the back. We've got the cup and the bread over here. And the one thing that we can't do easily in this version today is the reminder of how Jesus did it, which is it was one cup, one bread, one body. I want you to dwell on the unity that Jesus is after here, that we are all his beloved sons and daughters, that he is growing each of us in the ways that he is growing us to be more conformed like Jesus Christ You might be further in this way than I am, and I might be further in this way than you are. Yet God is smiling down on all of us. Can we truly see our consciences in God's purview, in his vision, looking at them as being able to glorify him in the many different ways that they can? Would you pray with me? Father God, it feels like there is no lack of things in Paul that can feel hard to understand and difficult to wrap our head around fully, Lord. How you can be a God who because you can see our hearts, because you can see our every thought, can be glorified by two very different decisions is amazing. Thank you, God, for knowing me that way. Thank you, God, for knowing my brothers and sisters that way, that you know the intent of their heart. You know how they are seeking you, pursuing you, trying to bring you the most glory possible in their life. Father God, would you help us to have that kind of charity, that kind of unity with one another? Would we push each other first and foremost, not to the right answer, but to the right relationship, to a relationship that looks to you in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.